Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast, everyone. I am Dan Valley coming at you solo because my co-host Adam Frommel is super selfish and decided to take a vacation that infringed upon our schedule. Um, he was supposed to be back, but he's running into some transportation issues. So it's just me. Luckily, we do these mailbags, have a ton of questions in store. So we're not going to want for, for content. I will get right into this as a note for anyone listening to the podcast version of this. Um, this was recorded before Game 3 of Buck Suns. Um, I'm not answering any specific game questions with that. However, I'm going to begin with a question about Drew Holiday from Kim, who asks, what is wrong with Drew Holiday? Um, and also asked why the Bucks are playing so poorly against Phoenix. I actually don't think they've been playing poorly at uh, that my age after Game 3, so I'm not going to go deep into that. They probably they need to figure out how to score more points, um, generate more efficient offense, I should say. And Game 2, you look at their offensive rating, it was like a little bit better than league average, so that should be fine. But this comes back to Drew Holiday overall, and in the playoffs, they need more from him. Uh, he's clearly an upgrade over Eric Bledsoe. He has you know, been fantastic for them on defense during the playoffs, including, I think, for the most part, during this Phoenix series as well. Uh, but you got him because he's supposed to be, and he is, a better shot creator, better shot maker, just more of a threat in the half court than Eric Bledsoe, someone who defenses need to respect, need to cover. And defenses aren't necessarily abandoning him, but he's shooting for the playoffs. And this isn't, you know, this isn't a final-specific thing. I know he's had two rough games in the finals. He's been up and down a lot these playoffs. He's shooting 50 of 90 at the rim. Uh, which is 55.6%. That's against the league average in the playoffs of 64.7%. And that's where, you know, a pretty good amount of his shots are coming from within that area. I know these aren't easy layups that he's taking, um, but when nearly 30% of your shots are coming at the rim, when these are shots that you've made in the playoffs, that is absolutely an issue. And it's not like he's hitting his outside looks either. He is shooting under 32% from three for the playoffs. Um, And he is, you know, when you factor out heaves, he is only 30 of 94 and above the break threes during the postseason, which is 31.9%. And that's where another 30% of his shots are coming from. He's actually done kind of, sort of, okay uh, in those in-between spots. Uh, so he's shooting 30 of 68 on twos outside the restricted area, but inside the paint, 44.1%. Again, not spectacular, but not terrible. And then he's at 38.6% on long twos, which is just... Um, 14% of his shots coming from that area is a little weird. I think that's really a, a factor of him having the ball in his hands. When you do generate your own shots, you are going to get more of those looks. You would like that number, I guess, to be a little bit higher, but it's you know 38.6% on twos outside the paint. Not, not great. We've seen worse runs. I really think it's he needs his three-point shooting to normalize, and he's never been the most knockdown shooter, so I think you more look at it as they need more from him as a finisher at the rim and his attack mode is super valuable in that regard. I would expect him to bounce back at some point at the same time. I do think it's discouraging to say the least that this has been a postseason long thing with him on offense where yes, he's, he's had his moments. Um, he's hit some big shots and I, I can't do anything to take away from his defense. He is so good. Um, both as a, I would argue as a team defender, but really as someone who's who's on the ball, can handle all these different types of assignments. You just look at the breadth of guys that he has covered before this series. You need him to be better than he is on offense. And I'd probably argue that just by virtue of the respect he commands on offense with the ball in his hands, uh, he's still an upgrade there over Eric Bledsoe. But to come out of this final series specifically, if you're listening to this on Monday or Tuesday, just after game three at any point, if the Bucks won, I'm just going to assume that it's because Drew Holiday had a good offensive game. 
And the final thing I'll say here, I don't think it's been talked about enough, is the Bucks feel like they haven't had any of their three stars cooking at once in the playoffs. They've had games, of course, where it's one of them, like game two of the finals where Giannis goes off and no one else really, you know, Middleton struggles and, and Holiday struggles. They've had games where two guys go off. Um, they've had games where Chris Middleton is good for a half or good for a quarter and then sort of fades. Never all three of them, it feels like, have just been going off at once. And that's clearly when the Bucks are at their most dangerous. And so you need all three of your stars to be on point. The biggest roadblock to that happening, aside from if you want to talk about Chris Middleton's waxing and waning act, and you won't find a bigger Chris Middleton propagandist than me in the NBA media, I don't think, uh, been up and down at points. And that might be what separates him from the truly elite players. So the bigger roadblock is just Drew Holiday has not been Drew Holiday on offense for most of the playoffs. Um, we have two n- notes in the chat. Noah, shout out to Noah for coming back as always. The Bucks also have no depth. Like it's surprising they're in the finals while only going eight deep. I agree and disagree. I'm pleasantly, they have no depth. I 100% agree right there. Missing Dante DiVincenzo sucks. Um, the fact that you have to rely on Jeff Teague at all in the NBA finals is definitely problematic. Uh, Pat Con- Making Pat Connaughton happen it's a tricky proposition. I think it's paid off more often than not in the postseason, so that's good. I would argue that Bud shortening his rotation during the postseason was actually impressive, but they do feel like if you want to ideally shorten your postseason rotation, they still feel like one everyday matchup-proof player short of being super elite. Or, you know, the surprise could lie in, and I don't disagree with Noah here, is there have been nights where I don't know that P.J. Tucker's provided enough defense to justify how much offense he's not giving you. Hasn't shot the corner three well for most of the playoffs. And if he's just not a high-volume guy to begin with, so if he's not making the most of his low-volume opportunities, he has to be defending incredibly well to have value. You just don't have alternatives. Bryn Forbes, such a defensive liability for them. And if he's not hitting shots, um, it's tough to play him. And then, as I mentioned, Jeff Teague just shouldn't be in this this rotation for them. But he kind of, you know, now it's the, the Jeff Teague dependence is a necessity. Uh, Brandon said simply in consistency. I'm assuming he's talking about the Bucks at large or Drew and Chris Middleton. I would I totally agree with Chris Middleton. Um he I just feel like he would be among one of the consistently, you know, the top fifteen to twenty-five guys in the league for season long spans if he was more aggressive. And then I do think there's an element of a shot making where it bails out before the rim. And I think that lends itself to to higher variance. And if you're not a Devin Booker, if you're not a Chris Paul, that's just not going to fly. Uh Steve says, it seems tough to counter campaign Cam Johnson and Tory Craig with Jeff Teague and Brent Forbes. Yeah, I, th- this is, look, if the Bucks lose, the story is going to be that this is because of the Suns, or it should be, at least. They are so deep. And the fact that you have campaign uh, in game two, I think he logged under 10 minutes. I'm doing this stuff off the top of my head. Didn't really score. I think it was one of three or something just stupid from the field. And he's still getting doubled coming around pick and rolls because He's been such a jitterbug for them on offense, hit off the dribble threes, scooted to the rim. He's really improved as a passer to me. Cam Johnson is an all-around player, by the way. I think we need to talk about that more. Just someone who's a good cutter will be opportunistic on the offensive glass. We know about his shooting. And he's held up more than I think anyone would have predicted defensively over the course of his career, but especially this season. Uh, Torrey Craig, who, by the way, as we're recording this, found out is indeed planning to play game three. So hopefully there was no structural damage in that knee injury he suffered, which was good news, but still sort of ambiguous. The fact that he's trying to play is is huge, and he's been big for them. Um, the Bucks getting rid of, I know he wasn't playing there, but like they really could have used him in this series. Them giving him away from free is, uh, yeah, uh, not not so great now. But he is 
Tory Craig, one of the better rebounding, especially in the offensive um, class wings in the league. Also someone who, with Phoenix, has been hitting his threes and he gives you a lot defensively. And now, because of, as Steve mentioned, the Dario Sharich injury, uh, you need him more to kind of unlock your smaller lineups where Jay Crowder is going to be your five, where it's committee with Jay Crowder and Tory Craig. I'm not saying you have to go to those lineups, but when it's Frank Kaminsky that's going to be getting reps, there's, you know, I, I don't know how long that really flies for. So he's important. Hopefully he's healthy to play. Hopefully they get good minutes. If he's too injured to go or if he's just not great, I'm wondering if we see more of Abdel Nader because I do think that you have to um, lean on those smaller combinations after the DeAndre Ayton minutes, just looking at your alternatives now, which is Frank Kaminsky, and just the fact that Steve mentions this, um, the Giannis, the five lineups that the Bucks are surely going to counter with, just given how much less they've gone with Bobby Portis throughout this series. Um, and I don't, you know, Giannis at the five lineups, what's interesting is I still will just, in game two, yes, I think everyone was in agreement that the Bucks defended well. I even think in game one, they figured stuff out without adjusting um, as much as they should have. They did adjust a ton in game two, so I think Bud deserves credit for that as well. That might just be the, the bare minimum credit, but he has done some tinkering with the way that they're defending, how aggressive they've been with their pick and roll coverages, how high Brooke Lopez is, is coming up. And so changes like that matter. Giannis at the five is not about the defense. The Suns haven't been scoring Milwaukee off the floor. And if they are, it's because their shot making is absurd. It's about the offense. And can you unlock something there with, you know, especially with Giannis doing so much of his damage in the half court during game two, because I do think that knee is still an issue when it comes to him getting out in transition. Can he do more for you as a screener? Or it's just, you know, by virtue of having Giannis at the five, you are more versatile because you're probably going to have, you'll have Drew and Chris Middleton in that lineup. I think the problem with those combinations are they're a lot less attractive when Dante DiVincenzo doesn't exist. Um, Pat Connaughton and Bryn Forbes, is that doing it for you? I guess it should on offense, but there could be really issues on, on defense. So a um, couple more notes from the chat. Noah says, but Bud also doesn't adjust, so there's that. Uh, Bud is still stubborn, but as I mentioned, I do think he's at least done better job adjusting pretty much this year. That criticism is, of course, fair, though. Uh, Steve says, I actually think they did adjust several different times with CP3 and Book, just had an answer for every adjustment. Also, Bud is really limited by his personnel. I agree with that, too. And, you know, CP3 and Devin Book are, you know, cooking, like they're shot making. And look, it's not even them. When they're getting rid of the ball, they, uh, you could very clearly see that the game plan was like, hey, we're going to make some of the Suns' others beat us. Mikael Bridges is going to beat you. This isn't just someone who shoots threes. And it's the same story with Jay Crowder. They'll put the ball on the floor when it comes to Mikael Bridges. He has like a little mid-range game now. Noah says, I'm telling you, Holiday, Forbes, Middleton, Portis, Giannis. Uh, I haven't looked to see how much time this lineup has gotten in this series. Um, probably not a lot, just based off how much Portis and Forbes have played in general. I would just be, I'd be worried defensively uh, with Forbes and Portis on the floor at the same time. I know Portis played well on defense in the the Hawks series in the Eastern Conference Finals. Phoenix is just, it's different. They're different. They're built to really just fuck up everything. And that, I think, at this point, it's not even, yeah, Phoenix is, Steve notes, they're built to hunt, but Phoenix is built to beat you in all sorts of different ways. I feel like I'm painting this as the Bucks have no hope. And I think they've shown that in game two, and even in game one, like that was a, a single-digit game in the fourth quarter. Their offense it needs to get going and they will have a chance. Like that's been the bigger struggle is even the guys who've been targeted on defense have not been compromising the game for them. It's that you've either had one of your, only one of your three best players playing well on offense, or there's the Drew Holiday struggle, Chris Middleton playing well for like, I feel like a half of this series so far. So that's going to be the difference. And if you're going to avoid 
a 3-0 hole, and again, I'm dating this incredibly, but this was a great conversation with you guys, it's because two, at least two of your stars had to go off if you're Milwaukee. And I'm assuming one of them is Giannis because like he is, he's a bellwether in his own way. If he's going to shoot 11 of 18 from the foul line, you probably feel decently about your chances of winning. But he's also the guy. Middleton has shown he's capable of this. Drew Holiday less so. He's the guy that will go out and clear 40-plus and have that absolute dominant game. Steve has a question about Drew to follow up Kim's question. Has Drew always been the guy we're seeing in the playoffs and just wasn't on a big stage, or is he underperforming to what he has historically been? So I think in New Orleans at large, I I don't want to – they were out of the playoffs so much with him there. I don't want to say he was a contributing factor, but him being cast as basically a number one because the offense had to run through him more than it did Anthony Davis, it did show his limitations. Um, That being said – you know, his his longest stint, I mean, he only made the playoffs twice in New Orleans. So we're not working with a huge sample size there to begin with. He actually played in more playoff games with the Sixers, 18, than he did with the Pelicans, 12. But during the, the nine-game playoff run for New Orleans in 2017-2018, he really was a boss. He shot 60% on twos in that campaign. Didn't get to the foul line a ton, and that's never really been his game. But you have that on top of the initiation that he does provide with his defense. It becomes you know, absolutely huge. So I would say, I don't even know that we could say he's underperforming relative to what we've seen. There was always the level of offensive seesawiness from Drew Holiday. I would say he's underperforming relative to the situation he's in right now, where you have two other guys next to you, both of whom can generate offense, where Anthony Davis, spectacular player, he grew as time went on, but He's more of a play finisher than he's going to be a, a playmaker. Noah asks, if the Bucks lose, is this season a success? I'm going to say yes, because you made the finals, and you kept Giannis on that five-year contract, and you extended Drew Holiday. So the core of your roster is intact. There is the element of, would they have been better off had Kevin Durant's foot been behind the line? They lose that series. Budenholzer gets fired. You change up the coach. Move on from there. I'll listen to that argument, but what I want to point out is that this could technically be their best chance at winning a championship, um, not just by virtue of them being in the finals at all, but if you just look at the landscape of the league, is Brooklyn always going to be that unhealthy when it matters most? Maybe, but you can't guarantee that. I mean, they definitely have the personnel where it's James Harden, been an Iron Man, but because he's been an Iron Man for so long, he's almost overdue for these hamstring-type issues. Kevin Durant has the Achilles issue. They were... Definitely cautious in the regular season when he was dealing with lower limb injuries. And Kyrie just always has stuff. It never seems like it's a chronic reoccurring injury necessarily. It's just stuff. Um, Is Philly going to have this version of the team where, yeah, you could probably count on Joel Embiid being banged up throughout the course of the year, but he still played magnificently during the playoffs. What's the Ben Simmons situation? He can't be any worse, even if they keep him offensively in the playoffs. Um, There are teams that are up and coming. The Hawks, they're a team that I think there's the danger of, oh, do you read too much into this season because you made the conference finals? Um, at the same time, they're flexible, and they were missing their own guys. They didn't really have Cam Reddish for most of the postseason, and then he flashes something in that game six loss with the shot making. DeAndre Hunter was really good this year when he actually played. The problem was he he barely played. And they do they have the means to make trades just because of their picks, their prospects. But if they're just healthier, they're a team that's on the rise. I think you can almost guarantee that one of, if not both, of Boston and Miami are going to be better next season. Uh, healthier, hopefully, especially for Boston, um, though they will have Jalen Brown coming back from that injury. 
the East is going to be tougher, is all I'm saying. And look, you don't know whether Toronto Raptors are going to land there. Um, they are a better team than their record showed. If they keep it together, whether or not they bring back Kyle Lowry, um, and if they bring back Kyle Lowry, you could throw them into the fold. Do the Knicks get better, or are they just as good? They're a wild cards, but I think you look at the East right now, between Atlanta, Miami, Boston, Philly, Brooklyn, and just knowing what happened to some of those teams this season, this might be Milwaukee's best chance at winning a title. I don't know that it makes it a failure if they don't, but it's something to look at moving forward because they are so limited in what they can do. I don't know what the move is for them. And I, I spent time trying to figure it out, talked about it on a previous podcast. Uh, do you do you know the framework of a deal that, uh, well, Steve asked, is there any chance the Bucks could go after Kyle Lowry? It would have to be via sign and trade, and they don't really have the money to get there. And even if they do, then they're hard capped, which that would just be if you have Drew on a max deal, Middleton on a max deal, Giannis on a max deal, and Kyle Lowry at $20 million a year, that's really tough. I think a move that's more doable for them um, is can they do something where you're exchanging Brooke Lopez, some salary filler, is it number 31 or 32 in the draft, whatever they are, Dante DiVincenzo's in an extension year. Like that's your package with money and assets. Harrison Barnes was like the best player I came up with. And if you believe that you can get a couple centers on the cheap who are really good, I think having Harrison Barnes help you a bunch come playoff time. Another guy who can generate his own shot helps you unlock some of the smaller ball combinations. Um, and then is going to give you a solid positional defender. And if you wind up pl- replacing PJ Tucker's minutes with Harrison Barnes minutes, it's a huge upgrade. But then you're in a situation where you've traded Brooke Lopez. You are a lot smaller. Um, is it worth giving up both Brooke and Dante DiVincenzo to get Harrison Barnes? I think it might be a more iffy on Brooke than I am Dante DiVincenzo because one of how well Brooke Lopez is um, defended during a good portion of these playoffs and two, and also scored inside the arc, just positioning himself to get those passes from Drew Holiday and scoring really easily. But Dante DiVincenzo, the injury, he's in a contract year next year. How much are you going to pay him? I do think he's good. Probably not someone that everyone really knows of too much, but a, a chaser on defense. Um, he can handle the ball a little bit and run point guard on offense. Three-point shooting's always been like so-so, but that's, you know, he's better than Jeff Teague. Is a, a lot better than Jeff Teague. But when you're thinking about his next deal, I think I would probably do the Harrison Barnes route. But I don't, you know, are they willing to pay that much to their top four guys at that point? They're going to need to either mine some gems on the trade market um, or really hit home runs in free agency with, will they even use their taxpayers mid-level this year? I think you have to. You're obligated to if Giannis is there. But who can you get for that? Like, who's going to Milwaukee um, over a Brooklyn if they're offering the same money? Or even to one of the LA teams? Uh, so they're going to be fascinating to watch. I do think what they probably need is another shot creator who's not as much of a liability on defense. Um, so, and it doesn't, so I know when we say shot creator, we automatically assume they need to be high end. I would say like a Bryn Forbes level offensive player, uh, who just isn't as targetable on defense. Um, and they, they need to still diversify their front court rotation. I probably another bigger wing who is higher volume on offense than, than PJ Tucker. Um, so, like that, like that route. But those are those are hard things to get when you have very few assets and no cap space. Steve says shows how much the Suns kind of struck gold with campaign. They picked him out of nowhere and he turned into a big rotation guy. Yeah, and now they're going to risk losing him because they only have his early bird rights. And I assume that he'll have opportunities to play more elsewhere, especially if Chris Paul returns to Phoenix. But that those are if you're a really good team, those are the kinds of moves that you need to make on the margins to really expand your rotation and. Yeah, the Suns did it with Torrey Craig, picking up Torrey Craig. That's someone the Bucks had. Um, why weren't they playing him more? That's certainly up for debate. But like, that's the type of 
stuff that you need, or even picking up an Abdul Nader who gave him good regular season minutes uh, in the trade for Chris Paul, uh, being the team that wooed Jay Crowder, those, I would call them doubles. Um, the Jay Crowder move might be closer to a triple at this point, given how valuable he's become to them. But that's what the Bucs need to do is can they really find the perfect fit with their mid-level? Or is it going to be spent on bringing back Bobby Portis, who they don't have his bird rights? Everyone assumes he's going to decline his player option. And now you've seen that there are matchups where he's just not going to play a ton as valuable as he was to you against Atlanta. So it's the Bucs are going to have a pretty tough offseason. But I think, um, look, yeah, Tanasis is Giannis's brother. If Giannis wants him there, I get it. Like, I'm not going to fight that. But yeah, it's Torrey Craig is better than Tanasis Antetokounmpo. Um, he does bring you, Tanasis gives you a ton of energy on defense, but I just don't know what he provides you on offense. Let's try and move away from the finals. Although I guess this is tangentially related from the finals. This question was not a mailbag question. It was sent to me uh, directly via my DMs. Raul Clement asked, um, about a basically a 2018 NBA redraft. He said, it's sort of related to my suggestion for a redraft pot above. Where do you have Aiton in a 2018 redraft? I think Luca, Trey, and SGA are the top three. Where does Aiton fall in comparison to MPJ, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Mikhail Bridges? Um, the name that I might be most interested in to see like what happens in a 2018 redraft could be Mikhail Bridges. I am 100% not going to lie about that just because that dude's going to get paid. And a good barometer for how much someone was watching the NBA this year might be whether they, how well they react to that. But so, yeah, so th- those names, I think it's Luca still goes one in that scenario. I'm taking Trey over Shea Gilgis Alexander, though, uh, still. It's very close. Shea Gilgis Alexander is third for me. So Raul laid that out perfectly. Luca, Trey, and SGA um, would round out the top three. It gets interesting here. I think, I think you, I think it's Aiton. At four, um, MPJ has a real case here, but the back issues really worry me. Um, but man, the efficiency on offense and this dude—you can't like actually defend him. He can shoot over the top of anybody. If he ever gets to a point where he's putting the ball on the floor more and even setting up his teammates, that's probably the next frontier for him. The thing that's made it so difficult for me when I was thinking about this to not take Michael Porter Jr. is he really actually improved on defense this year? And did more stuff as a you know a weak side helper being around the rim. I don't think he's ever going to be a lockdown one on one defender, but it's a it's a big deal if he's just not a complete zero on defense. I still think we need to see more of a facilitation role from him. And so since DeAndre Ayton, I think can be a good backline defender and be the anchor of a really good defense. Yeah, he's still trying to figure out how to vacillate between two different um, types of modes. I would say when you're in the half court, it's there's the you know leaving your spot, um, knowing when to do that, but also knowing when not to leave your man. Those are things that he still needs to figure out. I think it's him, though. After that, I'm going Michael Porter Jr. at five. Jaron Jackson Jr. is tough. As of right now, I'm taking Mikael Bridges over him. You give me a wing who is all-defense caliber, I absolutely think Mikael Bridges should have made all-NBA. Uh, I'm sorry, all-defense this year. You give me the opportunity to put that on a roster. It's more than a 3 and D wing because he can put the ball on the floor. Like I said before, he has that little bit of a mid-range game. After him, that's when I'd throw Jaron Jackson Jr. in there. There was no one else that I thought of that would really compete for that. Um, once you get out, I mean, maybe a Colin Sexton might be, and we have a question about Colin Sexton, so that might be a good segue. Uh, I think he would come next for me, by the way. Colin Sexton is after at this point, what number are we, are we technically up to? Let me double check here. So we have Luca, we have Trey, we have Shea, 
We have Aiton, that's four, MPJ five, Bridges six, Jaron Jackson Jr. seven, Colin Sexton eight. I might take Colin Sexton over Jaron Jackson Jr. at this point, too. The dude is just, he's a bucket, um, and I think he's become underrated as a scorer somehow. People are probably going to be concerned about what he gets in an extension, and I get it if you view him as a point guard, but he's not a point guard. He's a, I think his passing has improved, at least when he's on the move. It doesn't feel like he has tunnel vision as much. Um, but if you can get someone who can score at the level that he can, that's a that's a big friggin' deal. I'm trying. I'm. I just look at Jaron Jackson Jr.'s potential, floor spacing at his position. Still moves really well on defense. It's just complete anarchy where he's still going to foul a ton, and there's sometimes not a rhyme or reason to it. I'll go Sexton at seven, Jaron Jackson Jr. at eight. Hopefully, I'm not reading too much into this um, season where he he missed pr- pretty much all of it. We have another draft question, though, and this is a fascinating one. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this from Nick Orman. What point in the draft should teams start to draft for fit versus best player available? Or should best player available always be a choice? This is just like, this is a debate that happens every single year, talked about ad nauseum. I think it gets, there's, there's a lot to this, but. Um, one of my favorite writers, Yasmin Duale from Basketball News, wrote a big piece on this exact question um, this past month, um, I, within the past month, I think. And it is, a, as Steve notes, it is a philosophy question, um, but she boiled it down to, and I think this was an important way to close it, talent can determine fit, and fit doesn't exclude talent, is a lot to really consider there. Where I sort of lean is, I don't, when we think about fit, I do think it matters. If you want to take an older rookie because he's a wing and you need a wing and you think he could contribute right away, Mikael Bridges might be a perfect example here. I think where fit becomes a problem or where you're drafting for need is you go into the draft and you say, all right, we need, we need a big and we're going to draft a big at number 11 or we need a point guard. We're drafting a point guard at number seven. When you get tunnel vision like that, I would say it's more problematic than any one guiding philosophy. Um, and I also think it, your timeline matters. There's context involved here. You, If you're a team that's trying to win now, um, do you have time to gamble on a high upside player just because he's the best talent versus someone who might be a better fit, fills a need, and can contribute right away? I do think that sort of needs to factor in here too. I think callously, I could zoom out and say, you always just go for the 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 best player or who's deemed the most talented player available because that's the biggest swing. You want to go after the best chance of having the highest impact player for the longest time. That being said, like some of those guys just don't pan out. And so you need to have really big confidence in your developmental project and as a front office, the job security to make that type of a swing. Um, we do have a speaker request. I believe I'll get to that in a second, but um, Joseph Briggs said, yeah, that's a philosophy question. Steve said, it seems that it somewhat comes down to how good your team is. If you don't have to, um, you don't have top end talent, you need as many shots as possible. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think the team that could really, uh, one of the teams that could define this is uh, maybe it's not. And the other thing that goes into this here is what is considered the best player available. Let's look at this draft class where it's Evan Mobley, Cade Cunningham, Jalen Suggs, and Jalen Green. So if you're drafting one through four, and maybe you're the Raptors at four. You're taking who's ever left over in that situation, regardless of fit, because it's just deemed that they are the toppest end talent, unless, again, you're thinking about trading that pick. It gets a little bit difficult when you're moving on to subsequent picks, and it's, oh, does Scotty Barnes belong at number six? So 
I I think the the note from Joseph is the best one is that it is a philosophy question. I don't know that there's one size fits all when it comes to a team. It matters about their situation, matters about their timeline, the job security, the front office, where they are. I think more importantly in their competitive timeline, though, as I just mentioned, is more important than anything. Um, but I, I just you know even if you draft who is ever deemed the best player at that time, and maybe it's the best player by a landslide. You could you could screw that player up. They could be a terrible fit for your roster if they need to have the ball in their hands and you don't have spacing around them and there's a ton of other ball handlers on your roster. That's not the best situation for them to be in. So, you know, it might be like, imagine if the Sixers of last year just drafted Ben Simmons onto their team. Is like he would, or like he would very clearly be the best player in that available in theory in that 2020 draft. But how good is he to that team? Because his fit is so wonky there. So that's a fa- it's a fascinating question. I absolutely love it. Um, and I just think that it's always going to vacillate. I don't know that you can just as- subscribe to, to one of those theories. We do have a speaker request from Busboy KP. So I'm going to throw you the mic. Um, let us know what's on your mind, Busboy KP. Busboy KP, are you there? All right. If you come back, feel free to um, request speaking again. Um, Steve notes in the chat: development is never guaranteed. Yeah, I think that's you know it's perfect. And I think you can also look like a Devin Booker doesn't fall in the lottery because people didn't think he was like they passed on the best player available. Like there's or Tyler Hero doesn't fall in the lottery. Like there are just teams that might not think they're the best player available. We do have another speaker request. This one is from Joseph. Joseph, I'm handing you the mic. How's it going, Joseph? Uh, it's going great. Um, I may have come in a little late for you talking about Bucks and Suns, but I wanted to incorporate what you're talking about with the finals a little bit. Um, just talking about Bledsoe versus Holiday. Um, you know, the Holiday contract is, I mean, you can see it as obscene. Um, I live in Wisconsin. I've been a Bucks fan for 30 years. Had to endure the 90s Bulls. Um, <laughs> But, you know, Holiday is exponentially better than Bledsoe. And so kind of weathering the storm here, they, the Bucks don't have a ball handler. So they need a true ball handler. I mean, Giannis is handling the ball. I guess my question is, um, do you kind of, you know, going into the draft, do the Bucks look to get a pure ball handler, even if um, kind of off the radar? That's kind of where I'm at right now with the Bucks, win or lose. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you're here for that, but I said Drew Holiday still, even as poorly as he's been playing, he is. You pick Drew Holiday over Bledsoe right now, a hundred times out of out of a hundred. Um, just what he brings defensively, and then defenses at least still care about Drew Holiday to where they just they didn't care at all about Eric Bledsoe. Um, I agree with your point that they do need. I guess you could argue it's a primary ball handler. I don't know that you would necessarily go after someone in that mold just because you are going to have the ball so much in a holiday Middleton or Giannis's hands. I don't know that I would take a shot. I mean, yeah, go ahead and take a shot in the draft, but realistically, what is your second round pick? Even though it's based, a fr- you call it a fringe first rounder at that point, given where they're given where they're seated. Uh, how likely is he to contribute in year one? Um, how likely is he to get a chance in year one? It would be something for them to consider. I think what they're going to need to do is figure out a way to hit it via free agency. Um, is there someone that falls through the cracks there? Uh, and when you look at the names of like, there are free agent point guards, but 
all of them virtually just fall out of the Bucks range. And like, let's not even forget about the stars like Kyle Lowry, Chris Paul, Mike Conley. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie would be great for this team out of their price range. Uh, I don't really know what Dennis Schroeder would be for this team. He's going to be out of their price range anyway. I wouldn't want to be the team that pays him personally. Um, Devontae Graham, out of your price range probably, uh, because he's going to get at least the full non-taxpayers mid-level, which you're probably not working with. Um, you know, if Goran Dragic's team option is declined, he's probably going to get at least $10 million a year. Uh, can you get yourself? I mean, I'm just trying to look at names that you could get involved with for the mini mid level, and the options are just not like great. I, I don't know. You know, mini mid level is not even going to entice Reggie Jackson at this point. The Clippers would 100%. They can and will pay him um, more than that based on the early bird rights that they have. Uh, is a Patty Mills doing it for you? A campaign would be great, but they're not going to be able to afford him either. They might have to look at trades, and it might be a scenario where. You know, and you have to be mindful of actually what type of players are available because you're not working with, yeah, in theory, and I'm not saying they should do this even if they could, maybe you can go out and get Kemba Walker for free from OKC just because you're willing to send out the money. They just don't have the money at this point in contracts to do something like that. So you, you have to go after like a player who's mediumly priced and might even be just lower priced or, or below market. And those players can be, they're, they're tough to find. And it's, you know, you start getting into names like, okay, well, like a Thomas Sedaransky, if he's a free agent, or if the Bulls make him available, um, should they guarantee a salary? Is that someone that you're considering? Uh, I do think if you're Milwaukee, you might have some tools to pull off a sign and trade. But as I mentioned at the top of this, I don't, they're not a team that I can envision working with within the hard cap, uh, a team like them and, and Philadelphia. Like that's really tough for them. You can maybe pick up like a Trey Burke from Dallas, but that doesn't come back to Joseph's primary point, which I think is a fair one. You probably need someone who's closer to a primary setup man at this point. Um, if there was, I don't know how much he's going to cost. I would guess it's more. Like, TJ McConnell could end up working for this roster. Like that's someone who could really help them. Um, I don't know where they necessarily find that guy though, because they are in a tough situation. I would definitely be in support of them taking a swing in the draft. And as someone who has not begun his you know neck deep draft prep prep work yet i just don't know who's going to be available to you in the the second round to make an impact and so you know does, does derrick rose fall through the cracks on free agency he probably helps you a little bit um but the you know there are not a ton of options out there for milwaukee and i think they're more likely probably to address it effectively on the trade market just when you look at the free agents available what most of them are going to command unless someone agrees to you know, I think a Goran Dragic would be an example of, oh, I just want to, the Heat, they decided to opt for cap space, got rid of, declined his team option, and he just decides, you know what, I want to be on a team that's that will play me, and that's really close to and on the verge of a title. Um, there just aren't a lot of guys out there. Like, like even if it was Patty Mills, I don't know if you, Patty Mills is a primary ball handler. He's like a, you know, he's an upgrade over Bryn Forbes, certainly, but he's not going to, he's going to be targeted on defense himself, so um that was a great question joseph uh did you have anything you wanted to add to that before i remove um your your speaking privileges um that was a um terrific answer uh thank you for that i just i just want to add um you know a sweep versus the bucks going six or seven maybe that sways someone you know it's a player's league Mm -hmm. um if they go six or seven maybe they can convince someone to come that's all i have thank you Thanks. Um, thanks so much for stopping by, Joseph. Uh, yeah, and look, a name that I'd be interested for them to try for, or two of them, really. And I don't. I, these players might be more expensive than the Bucks could afford. Uh, I would love Lou Will 
in Milwaukee. Someone who's going to get targeted on defense, but he's and he's not a true point guard, but he can run pick and roll to death. And you can envision him. He helped Atlanta out for stretches. Or an Alec Burks, where it's someone who's comfortable, you know, being a secondary guy. If you're or an Austin Rivers, even if you're not, and I guess my point here is, if you're not going to get the primary guy, hit a homer on the secondary guy that you're that you're really going to go after. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be fascinated, and a lot will depend on. You're right, Joseph, how they end this series. I'm assuming it's not going to be a sweep, based off of maybe this age is extremely poorly, but my guess would be it is not a sweep, um, just based off what I've seen in games one and two. Uh, so we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see there. Let's get to a, another question here that we have ruminating. Um, Nambu asks, what should we expect from Celtics new head coach, Ime Udoka? Uh, Udoka has been involved in a lot of head coaching hires. Uh, well, excuse me. He's been a head coaching candidate many times before. I think the thing that people are immediately going to gravitate to is he spent a lot of time in the Spurs system. You know he's defensive focused, and that's similar to Brad Stevens. And I think that's good because Boston did fall off defensively this year, and you want a coach who can maximize your defensive talent without necessarily getting a huge talent infusion. And Boston's not really in a position to, to get a huge talent infusion. They do have Al Horford, and you know maybe they should bring back Evan Fournier, but he's not going to help you defensively. Um, he might be in someone who can install principles that allows them to overachieve on defense. Also, based off what I've read, um, Rudy Gay said this as well. So, and he obviously spent time with um, Udoka in San Antonio. Uh, he holds players more accountable than Brad Stevens is how people would frame it, because Brad Stevens was sort of the silent type, and that maybe was more of like a public persona. But I think with the number of times we heard stuff emanating from the locker room in Boston or the year before they kind of blew it up. What was that? Seems like forever ago. Was that 2019, 2000, 2018, 2019 season? Um, how tough it was for them to navigate the the season with so many contract year guys on on their roster. It might be fair to say that he's not much of a disciplinarian. And I'm not saying you need this rigid force in charge. It is a player's league, and you need to be fungible, adaptable, malleable. But um, Rudy Gay said, and this is per Stadium's Jeff Goodman, um, he won't tell a player what he wants to hear and won't back down from anyone. He's got the perfect balance. He'll laugh and joke, but knows how to be serious. And so if, if he's able to sh- strike that hedge like a like Greg Popovich has done a lot in, in San Antonio, you've given him at least the top-end talent, when fully healthy anyway, in Jason Tatum, in Jalen Brown, if you keep Marcus Smart, and you know, maybe even Al Horford. That might be the quintessential guy where it's, wow, Al Horford, do we consider him for all defense next season just because of what he did in Boston? I'm exaggerating, but maybe this is just a... Um, like it's that type of coaching hire, it seems. He's also, for anyone who cares, the first Nigerian NBA head coach. So um, that is pretty cool. Let's find some other questions here. And if anyone has ones, you can still feel free to throw them in the chat. I will get to them. Um, we have another question from Gilliard Morandum. He essentially asked, I'm rewording this uh, because which teams beat opponents who shot 50% on threes while making at least 15 threes? in that games only in the playoffs interesting question obviously it is um you know somewhat topical but it has happened now four five times on record in the playoffs um the teams to make at least 15 threes while shooting 50 percent on them and losing were the dallas mavericks this season uh may 28th against the clippers last year in the playoffs utah did it against denver and lost uh they lost by quite a bit too. Then in 2018, 
Denver did it against the Spurs and lost by 10, 118 to 108. Then in 2016, Detroit did it against Cleveland. Uh, they lost by five, so it was close. It feels like, I don't know, can't believe Detroit was in the playoffs in 2016. It feels like it's been longer than that. And then it hasn't happened since then, um, prior 2002. Uh, Boston hit 15-3, shot 15 of 30, and then lost against Philadelphia uh, in the, that looks like it was a first-round series of the playoffs. So it's only happened five times. If you're going to shoot 50% from three while making 15 three-pointers, uh, ch- chances are you're, you have a pretty good chance of not losing. So uh, interesting question. Thank you for it, uh, Gilliard. Um, Kyle asks, let's go to this one first because it's fairly quick. Louis Angel Santana asks, who are the top 10 leaders in finals PER? I'd rather look at playoff PER, and I'm also not the biggest PER fan. Um, so I did PER and VORP, um, and I set it at a minimum of 500 minutes played throughout you know their postseason resume history. And in PER, let's I'll read off the top five. The top five in PER right now in NBA history in the playoffs, minimum 500 total minutes postseason played. Michael Jordan is one, 28.6. George Mikan, 28.5 is two. LeBron is three at 28.2. Anthony Davis checking in at four. Low volume of playoff appearances helps him there. 27.7. And then Jokic, 27.5. Shaq is six. Hakeem is seven. Eight is Giannis. Nine is Durant. And 10 is good old reliable Tim Duncan. The top 10 leaders in postseason VORP. Again, minimum 500 postseasons played. LeBron leads that um, by quite a large margin. He's at number one. Michael Jordan's number two, again, by quite a large margin over everybody else. It starts to get closer where you look at Tim Duncan is three. Magic is four. Kobe is five. Larry Bird is six. Shaq is seven. Scottie Pippen is eight. KD is nine. Ten is Kareem. The reason I just prefer Vorp here, by the way, for anyone that cares, is PER is just going to reward volume a lot more. Um, and just given the, the pace of play uh, in the NBA today, that's why you saw so many modern day guys in uh, the, the top 10 of, of that first one. So just, just a little fun fact there. Um, let's get back to the question from Kyle. Is there any statistical way to justify paying Colin Sexton $100 plus million? For anyone who's curious, the uh, initiation here is probably one, because there's been rumors that maybe the Cavaliers would consider trading Colin Sexton. And the impetus behind that is two, he is extension eligible. And you get into this situation where you have these guys on rookie scale deals from a team perspective. It's easier to build around them, enjoy them. You don't need as definitive results because they're so cheap. They're on those scale deals for a, four, a minimum of four years. Um, or you have team control over them, I should say, for a minimum of, of four years. Colin Sexton, now you're in Cleveland. They're still not good. You also have Darius Garland on the roster. He profiles more as a lead ball handler. You have the number three pick in this year's draft. Are you going to wind up with a, a Jalen Green or a Jalen Suggs in that situation, complicating your pecking order a little bit more there? And how much is Colin Sexton going to command? Fair question. So looking at, and look, this is, whatever you think of Colin Sexton, the numbers are just, they jump off the page. He averaged over 20 points per game as a sophomore. This past season, though, his third year, 24.3 points, 4.4 assists, 37.1% on threes, 50.8% on twos. And he's not just hitting all these easy looks. So that, you know, that level of efficiency matters. And this is quite company to keep. And this is, here's the stat that's going to 
I guess, justify you if you wanted to paying Colin Sexton $100 million over, I'm assuming you're saying a five-year deal. Um, You can make 100 over four because that's below his max still. But only 11 other players last season averaged over 20 points while downing more than 50% of their twos. And excuse me, averaged 24 points while downing over 50% of their twos and 37% of their threes. The company is 11 players sounds like a lot, but then you read the players. Joel Embiid, Kevin Durant, Dame, Carl Anthony Towns, Colin Sexton, of course, Kawhi, Nicole Jokic, Steph Curry, Zach Levine, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kyrie Irving. That's an absurd company to keep. And also, when you look at the frequency with which these guys get to the line, Colin Sexton was fifth in free throw attempt rate behind only Cat, Dame, KD, and Joel Embiid. So that's something to consider. And I don't know what his actual extension number will be um, this this summer. It would not surprise me if, well, one, if they don't reach an extension, they prefer to kick the can down to restricted free agency. But two, I would think this is someone who, I know maybe 24 points and four assists on this efficiency isn't what it used to be. If he's getting less than $18 million a year, and I actually think that might be on the lower end, I would just be really surprised. And there are if that's the offer the Cavs present to him, let's say it's something like 480, 5100. Maybe he signs it, but you might, if you're him, want to roll the dice on cap space teams in 2022. There's always this implicit agreement, implicit mandate that you're going to uh, overpay or come out with these huge bids for restricted free agents because that's the single best way to poach them these teams aren't just going to let free agents worth a damn leave it just it doesn't it doesn't work like that so um i i think that's the justification i think the right team can pay him that much money and be okay and i think Colin Sex is a really good player i also do not think that the cavaliers are that team uh full stop i just don't think they're there yet Let's get to these last two quick questions yet. This one, I'm assuming Santoria thought maybe I wouldn't answer it, but he said, sexiest NBA player? I mean, it's got to be like Devin Booker or Kelly Oubre Jr. I don't know like who else is the – I don't know what the other candidates would be, but the, one of those two would be my pick and former teammates at this point. Final question, though, is – I think it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Uh, the Box N1, fantastic uh, website uh, run by a uh, friend of the podcast, actually, Adam Spinella. Where is Reggie Jackson going? Or more importantly, who is going to back up the Brinks truck for him? Now, Reggie Jackson's case in free agency, and I'm sorry, Cap Geekery really gets me going, uh, but Reggie Jackson's situation with the Clippers is fragile, I would say, just because they do have early bird rights on him, but early bird rights have their limitations. So what they can do in essence is – Forget about the raise. I think it's 190% or whatever. The, I can't even remember this at this point, but uh, they can give him a raise off last year's salary or up to the league average salary before dipping into cap space. The league average salary right now is projected to fall somewhere between 10 and $10.4 million. There's a chance someone gives Reggie Jackson more than that, and the Clippers don't have cap space. Like that's, it's a little bit more than the mid-level exception, which is clocking in at 9.8, I believe, to start. Um, so... Maybe he doesn't get that, and maybe he did say at the end of the postseason, this team saved me, uh, is what he told them. And so maybe he wants to just come back. He did. He had the bigger deal, five years, $80 million with Detroit. And they can, you know, this is how I thought what Phoenix did, which was a stroke of genius with Jay Crowder. And I can't believe another team wasn't willing to do this and wasn't willing to go to four years. They gave him three guaranteed years at the middle-level exception. So if you're a team 
that wants Reggie Jackson but might only want to invest in him for you know a year or two, you can separate yourself as the Clippers by saying we'll give you three years at the full mid level. Uh, we'll give or or rather the raise we can give you because they're going to have the mini mid level, or we'll give you four years. Maybe it's three years plus one. Like it, there's a team option on there, so that would be how they can distinguish themselves. Um, I will be fascinated though to see which teams might consider actually going after him. Uh, and if you're, we're looking at, look, if there are teams that we're going to say have the the mid level, full, let's say the full mid level, if that's the range he falls into, uh, the Clippers keep him because I would assume that they're going to have no qualms about paying him the the ten million dollar league average salary. So you're almost looking for teams that can bid higher or would give him more guaranteed years. So I do think that if you have the non taxpayers mid level exception, you're in Reggie Jackson range. Um, teams to consider there, maybe Boston. Um, need, needs like a secondary point. I mean, they got rid of Kemba Walker too, so there's that to consider. I'm not sure which version of the mid-level they're going to be working with just yet or how willing they are to pay the tax, even if they can stay below the apron. That's a team where it would be really interesting. Chicago could use a point guard, and it seems like they want to win now. We'll have clarity on that when we find out like what's going on with the Zach Levine renegotiate and extend talks. Uh, Dallas would be interesting. They'll have cap space, um, or if they choose to operate as an over-the-cap team, which is possible because they do have Tim Hardaway Jr.'s cap hold to work with if they want to keep him. They'll have the mid-level. Uh, probably not. Reggie Jackson isn't the traditional shot creator that you want alongside Luka Doncic, but he can run pick-and-roll. I mean, Detroit built a pretty good offense around a healthy Reggie Jackson pick-and-roll with with Andre Drummond. And whatever you think about Kristaps now, he's a little bit more dynamic on offense than Andre Drummond. So having someone to run pick-and-pops with. And just so, look, just so we're clear... Reggie Jackson, this postseason, averaged 17.8 points, 3.4 assists, shot 40.8% from three, and 58.2% from two. I don't think you expect that to be his new normal, uh, but when they needed him, he really stepped up, and that's going to be embedded into people's minds. And the reluctance for the Clippers to pay him might just be, we still kind of need Patrick Beverly. Can we move Rondo $7.5 million, um, into cap space? And he only played 23 minutes a game for us last season. How much are we realistically going to increase that when Kawhi Leonard is healthy? I would argue there's still plenty of room to increase that if you want to play him closer to 30 minutes a game. Um, he was only at 10.7 points in the regular season, but he's shown now that he's a bet, like he's a good three point shooter. That was the question for him. I don't know if anyone remembers, like when he was younger, um, first traded to Detroit while he was with OKC. And yeah, he's had some up and down seasons. He shot 35.3, 35.9 in his first two full seasons with Detroit. In his final full season, he was at 30.8%. But you know, including 2018, 2019, uh, up till now, he shot 39.3% from three. And so we're looking at three seasons worth of samples there. Like this is someone you could count on to be a catch and shoot guy, maybe give you some pick and roll and, and off the dribble responsibility. So that's why I do think he's going to have a wide market. Also, if you're a team that really can't afford a star like a Lowry, or if you don't think Lowry or Conley or CP3 is going to leave, he just, he or campaign at this point, even though he's not, you know, cooking necessarily in the finals, they become interesting options. A team that would be fascinating is Denver because of the Jamal Murray injury. They do have Facundo Campazzo and Monte Morris. Reggie Jackson offensively would be an upgrade over either one of those guys to me. I don't know if they're going to have the full taxpayer, non-taxpayer mid-level to work with, though. Um, that depends on whether Will Barton opts out, Jermichael Green is a player option, what they do with Paul Millsap's free agent hold. That would just be be fascinating there. The Golden State Warriors could really use him. They can't afford him. Um, yeah. The, the Lakers could actually use Reggie Jackson. They'll be hard-pressed, though, to use the, the non-taxpayers mid-level. And if you're going to stay in L.A. for the non-taxpayers mid-level, like that type of money, I would guess you just go back to the Clippers. We already mentioned the Bucks. They could certainly use them. I just 
don't project them to have the full MLE to work with. The Pelicans could probably use him, but they're like weirdly guard dense, but none of them are proven playmakers or floor spacers, really. If you get rid of Eric Bledsoe and you're not bringing a guard back in that deal, maybe that's a team that works its way into the discussion. The Knicks would be a team I would legitimately worry about. They do seem like a squad where I, I'm not saying they won't give out multi-year contracts this year, but it's not the year to have this cap space. And I think they're going to wind up prioritizing flexibility um, over the next, you know, for 2022 free agency or 2023 free agency. Yet they have all this cap space. Can you offer Reggie Jackson a one plus one that's inflated for him to come there and be your starting point guard? Because that's the spot you could give him. Like those, that's the Alfred Payton spot readily available. You know, would they give him 15 million just for the one season? Like they did with Marcus Morris last year. It's possible. Would they even guarantee him two years? Just that, you know, is this a three-year, $39 million situation with two of those years guaranteed? That's something that I could see them doing. Philly could really use him. They just don't have a pathway to get to him. Phoenix would be interesting, but I don't know why you want to move on from him uh, from campaign. I do think Payne uh, provides a little bit more off-the-dribble juice for, for, um, for Phoenix. Portland doesn't invest in backup point guards. Probably can't afford him anyway. That really might be it. Maybe San Antonio, if they are, depending on how much they want to win next year, they'll have cap space. And DeJounte Murray, Derek White, even if they bring back DeMar DeRozan, who's proven he can be an engine, they need like a playmaker, a primary playmaker who can also shoot threes. And they just don't have that right now. Reggie Jackson can be that. I don't think Toronto would get involved. Maybe if Kyle Lowry leaves, but a, a Van Fleet, Reggie Jackson starting backcourt is, I mean, it's tiny, but so is Lowry, Van Fleet. Um, but the defense you're getting from Jackson is nowhere near what you're getting from uh, nowhere near what you're getting from Kyle Lowry. Of course, I would also make a case for Washington if they they do need sort of a you know someone to upgrade over like you know how how Will Neto gave him great minutes, but not his offense first player. Uh, Ish Smith is not it. So Reggie Jackson, if you're going to use your mid uh, mid level on someone and you're, you're you're not trading Bradley Beal, I guess there's something to be said though about using your best spending tool on another guard when you're already burning like eighty million dollars or whatever it is on your backcourt and Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. Um, if there are no other questions in the chat, I, I will wrap us up. This was a lot of fun. Hope you all enjoyed the the solo talk from me. Um, until next time, remember, we're Hardwood Knox. If you haven't subscribed to us, check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Um, leave us ratings and reviews. Download all our episodes. Those are the best ways to help us. We try and bring personality and depth to the NBA conversation. We are here as of now every week, Sundays at 4. We might be doing a Monday or Tuesday locker room, though, if you want to come through. Um, that will be excellent and fun. Follow us. Uh, we're all over the place, at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. Um, we're also on YouTube if you want to catch our podcast there. And we will be using having Instagram and YouTube exclusives soon enough. So those are a good places to follow us. YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Until next time, and as always, I leave everyone with a shout-out to the one, the only, Frank Nielkina. <laughs>